The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. Special thanks to our title sponsor this season, IGS. Founded in 2013, IGS develops industry 4.0 solutions in the global ag tech and commercial lighting markets. As an industry innovator, they make revolutionary controlled environment growth products. For more information, visit intelligentgrowthsolutions.com. We have a model in society. There's a lot of pressure to grow at astronomical speeds. And I had to make a decision early on about what kind of entrepreneur I wanted to be and what kind of business I wanted to build. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast. Weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. So Henry Gordon-Smith of agritecture thank you for joining us on the vertical farming podcast thank you so much for having me so what's fun here is that we're both fellow podcasters so maybe we'll start there (laughs) when did the podcasting bug uh, bite for you yeah i I kept getting questions from our blog audience when are you starting a podcast and and then we went internally about six months ago and, and started brainstorming what we could do to contribute and we decided to pick a format which is really focused on specific cities. We wanted to kind of complement the other podcasts out there, and we wanted to showcase how agriculture thinks about local food and urban agriculture. Specifically, you know, what data is going to make it work or not, right? What's the climate? What's the demand? What are the, the challenges that various urban farmers are facing in cities? So our podcast, Locally Grown In, we do one episode a month. So, you know, not crazy active. We try to do really cool interviews. And we focus on a city at a time. So it's locally grown in Dubai, locally grown in Miami. And um, we're really excited to kind of spread and, and do every city in the world. Yeah, I've been trying to get caught up. I'm up to New York City now, which is uh, near and dear to me because I grew up in New York. I grew up in Yonkers uh, just outside. Nice. And I'm, I'm, and then I've lived in LA and I'm currently in Minneapolis. So I've basically got <laughs> all parts of the country covered. So we'll dive a little bit deeper in the podcast, but maybe for the benefits of folks, I don't know that there's many who haven't heard of you, but can you tell folks a little bit of your background and how you ended up in ag tech? Sure. So I grew up around the world. I had the privilege of being born in Hong Kong and growing up in Tokyo, Germany, the Czech Republic, and I graduated high school in Russia. So I'm a very global citizen from birth. And, you know, that really kind of created this really exciting interest in big cities and and what big cities could do. I always wanted to be an architect. And so I started exploring a little bit about how cities could respond to climate change in my undergraduate degree. And in that process, I found there was a really big gap around the knowledge of urban agriculture. People were thinking, this was back 2010, 2011, people were thinking about urban agriculture just as community gardens and maybe rooftop farms. But there's so many ways to do this that I was really excited about the diversity of them. And I really wanted to share, you know, the variety so that people involved in it, meaning entrepreneurs that want to build them or policymakers that want to encourage it or architects that want to design it, are really armed with, you know, this full spectrum of what's possible. Because, you know, I don't want to repeat the same mistakes of the past where we just kind of create monoculture and, and we, we say there's one way to do this. There's actually so many different ways to do this in agriculture and, and really our mission at agritecture is to educate and inform and accelerate low carbon solutions to, to localization of food. So the blog was really about that. And then essentially my audience started requesting consulting services from me. And I started getting referrals from, from people that, that were saying, oh, somebody has a question, you know, can you answer it? And no one was providing a consulting service that was independent of selling equipment. So I said, well, there's an interesting opportunity here. You know, people, people need to get technology agnostic advising. The decision as to do greenhouse or vertical is a very important first decision or soil is a very important first decision. How can you do that if you're not open to all of the technologies available? So we created a methodology for that and, and we've been really accelerating really, really cool urban farms around the world. And, and to date, we've consulted on over 110 projects in 26 countries. So we've really fomented our place as 
the leading urban agriculture consulting firm. And it's been very, very exciting. And I'm proud of my team for being able to respond to this niche and this very important issue. When did this become a passion of yours? Because you said you started the, the blog, but like, can you talk a little bit about just, and, and you talked about agriculture's mission. When did this become your mission? Yeah. You know, as I was exploring my interest in doing business solutions to sustainability challenges, I created three blogs to kind of test the market and to see what people responded to. And, and also what I cared about as an entrepreneur, it's very important. You are passionate about what you do because you're working crazy hours. You have to inspire your team. You have to inspire your investors. You have to inspire your customers. So, you know, I had to find something that really fit with me. So I did one that was called Technology Water, another one that was called Urban Layering, which was about new density solutions for urban development, and then Agritecture. And Agritecture just had an overwhelmingly positive response, and the traffic grew, and the actual activity that people were doing related to the content was really good. People were finding jobs through the blog and things like that. So I, I kind of dropped the other two and, and, and focused on it. And I think the passion really came from how urban agriculture embodies my passion for cities, my interest in solving sustainability challenges, but also I'm a wannabe architect. So by creating agritecture, I get to do architectural type work without uh, being an architect. And if you talk to architects, most of them will say, don't be an architect. The hours are crazy. The pay is low. So I kind of responded to a lot of that feedback and, and, and went this route. I mean, honestly, before this, I, I thought I was going to be a diplomat. I was very interested in policy and I was doing some policy work related to climate change and migration, but it was just too slow. It wasn't enough action. So I, I kind of came to the conclusion that basically through these requests that, you know, yeah, I think I would be a really good consultant because I love to help solve people's specific problems. I love project-based work. I want a global practice. And so that really fit well with that passion. And, and I just get so excited when I see our clients take their ideas to reality I get so excited when I get to uh, visit farms and report on the great work they're doing. I get really excited to do podcasts like this and share ideas. So, you know, 10 years in, I'm still as passionate as ever for this topic. I mean, I really, really believe that urban agriculture isn't just about growing some food in the city and creating some jobs. I think it's really about unlocking sustainable urban development. You know, anyone listening can ask themselves this question. What is an emerging technology that embraces the food, water, energy and waste nexus better than urban agriculture? Solar panels hit one part of it. Biodigesters hit another part of it. You know, biking and, and rainwater catchment hit another part of it. But urban agriculture brings that all together. And so imagine a future where we have people in cities asking those questions and developing businesses around that. They're going to unlock a lot of other things we need to figure out to develop our city sustainably to be resilient to climate change. And that's the bottom line for me. That's why I'm so passionate about this topic. You have a consulting background when you started this? No, I, I didn't. I mean, I, I had a blogging background, right? So I was a blogger. I was recruited to be a blogger for my university. And then I, I won a competition uh, with Royal Bank of Canada to be a video blogger for them for a while. And then I started doing some freelance consulting for people who were self-publishing books and needed to, to do that. And I was an executive assistant to an entrepreneur that was building a sustainability brand and I was doing their media strategy. So I, I started learning how to market my brand and, and sell you know, myself individually and doing freelance work. And that was really the the baseline for the consulting. But my mom is a talented consultant in the areas of HR, diversity, and emotional intelligence. So I got a little bit of uh, I got a little bit of advice from her too. It sounds like those skill sets would come in handy as you start having these sessions with your clients, especially that emotional intelligence and people getting excited about what they're trying to do and you helping manage expectations about what's actually possible. That's exactly my job. So a lot of, you know, I've got a really great team, including horticulturalists, agronomists, agriculture engineers, sustainability managers, uh, you know, really across the spectrum to, to provide interdisciplinary services to our clients. But a lot of what I do is the business development and, and hey, tell me your idea. I'll tell you in a few minutes what you should change about that idea and how you can make it more realistic. And yeah, you absolutely want to be sensitive to that because there's really amazing people coming to the space from software, technology, finance backgrounds, and they have a lot of areas of skills that I don't have. So I have to really match their abilities with, with our abilities and make sure that we're getting to a better result. So, you know, I do a lot of, a lot of that, that part of it. And I think also, you know, you need emotional intelligence in, in any leadership position, you know, with, with my team and, and, and with my clients throughout that process. So thanks, mom. As an entrepreneur, I'm just curious, what's been the biggest challenge with growing the company? <laughs> Well, you know, I think the biggest challenge is growth itself. You know, we have a model in society in the Elon Musk era and, you know, all of these things with crazy rapid growth, the Theranos stuff. And so there's a lot of pressure to grow at, at you know, astronomical speeds. And I had to make a decision early on about what kind of entrepreneur I wanted to be. 
and what kind of business I wanted to, to build. Do I want to build you know, an enormous global IPO style business? Do I want to build a business that's just about me that maybe has you know, a lot more flexibility? Or do I want something in between where I have a really strong company culture, a global brand, and we can, we can be profitable. And, and that's really what I selected. So I selected to develop you know, a really tight and, and dynamic firm with a really strong culture. Probably my favorite part of my job is, in addition to working with our clients on their ideas, is creating that company culture and maintaining it. So you know, I think I took a really deep look into myself about what kind of business I wanted to run and, and what was going to make me happy on a daily basis. And part of that is just doing work to try and change and improve the world. But I think also the day-to-day of working with a, a global and, and smallish team is what I really like. So the, the greatest challenge I would say is how do we take the responsibility to our employees, the business and our investors for, towards growth and balance that with our values and our culture? And I think it's a, a really a constant discussion that I have with my fellow directors at the company. And thankfully, we have early investors that are, are really passionate about the topic with us and have that long-term vision. So I've had to make some really good choices about team, really important choices about investors. And I think, you know, that's always the challenge. Every year we have higher growth numbers than the last year, and that's how a business should be run. And I believe that a business can't be sustainable without being profitable. So you have to have a growth model in there. So I, th- I think that's probably the greatest challenge, but we're, we're handling it, but it's it's a challenge. You mentioned the investing, and obviously the amount of money that's coming in has been really interesting, and, and it's probably changed dramatically since when you got started as well. Oh, yeah. But when you look at what's happening with like money coming into to Plenty and the Aerofarms and the Boweries of the world, do you see that also? Do you see like an uptick in that as well? Oh, definitely. There's been an uptick. I mean, when I started the blog, there were no commercial vertical farms in North America that were advertised and marketed that way. There was no major VC money coming to the space. So I've seen dramatic changes, I would say, in the past five years. Honestly, the first five years of me exploring this and blogging about it was like a nerdy kid in his dorm room and, you know, whatever, a thousand visitors a month kind of thing, you know? And, and, and so, but as that interest grew, and as, as people read Dixon's book, Dixon de Pommier, author of The Vertical Farm, and started saying, oh, I'm going to build a farm too, and, and people started making mistakes, and people started learning from those mistakes. And the overall, the, the understanding of vertical farming, for example, has been more democratized, in part by our blog, but also by other players and even those that have not succeeded. So people kind of know the basics now more than before. And so that elevates the whole discussion, and that elevates the kind of investment and and the proof of concepts that exist there. So, you know, AgFunder has some really good reports on, on the growth in this space. But yeah, we're seeing, you know, over 100% every year increase in the amount of investment in this space. I mean, I think it was 340% year over year, 2017 to 2018. You know, and a lot of the, the size of those are getting bigger into the 100 million, you know, levels. So what do I think about that? I mean, I think it's obviously very exciting. It's great that, that there, there is money going into the space because as a new technology, you know, we need to get the cost down and, and we need people who are pioneers and experimenting with that. And that's what a lot of these, these companies are doing is they're developing new data solutions, automation solutions, getting consumers excited about this product and aware of this product, getting policymakers. So it's all kind of a really great thing to solve, solve, solve the, the greater challenge at hand that, that, that I think we're all aware of. But part of my concern is some of this investment is VC folk, VC, VC type investment. And so with my detailed understanding of, of, of how these operations work, I get concerned about that in some ways because the rapid growth that's expected of them, you know, those kinds of funds is, is really not really in alignment with the vertical farming model, which is about raise a good chunk of money, like let's say at least $500,000, build a pilot, prove that you can make that work, raise more money, grow from there. But you're, you've got to do a lot of things. You've got to get consumers excited about the product. You've got to advance technology. You've got to manage labor. You've got to manage distribution. You've got to build a, a, an amazing brand that's going to be the winning one. All of that takes a lot of time. It's not, it's not an app. It's, it's, it's not a software company. You know, so you, you have to do all of that, plus have investors that are like, get that this is so new and so pioneering that they're going to be patient because it's inevitable that you're going to make mistakes. It's inevitable that your build deadlines are going to be late. It's inevitable that you're going to have costs that were higher than you expected. So it's really interesting to see you know, what kind of investment's coming in, but I but I'm I'm also want to be careful because I think some of that investment pushes the hype story around vertical farming. And I'm I'm not about hype. I'm happy to encourage and, and, and talk about the benefits of urban agriculture and vertical farming, but I really want to talk about the complex questions. You know, and, and I think that some of this investment drives more hype. And that's not necessarily a good thing. What are some of those uh, more complex questions that you're you're looking to get answered? Yeah, I think some of the complex questions are can vertical farming meaningfully impact food security, right? When we talk about feeding people, 
what is the difference between feeding people and producing salad greens? I have nothing against vertical farming, obviously. But I do want to talk about, again, going back to these models and the complexity we're trying to communicate that there are many tools in the toolbox to solve problem X, aka food security. Vertical farming is one of them. Is it the best one? Maybe in some climates. You know, for example, if you look at northern climates in the northern part of Canada, they have a lot of obesity issues. They have a lot of issues with vitamin deficiencies because they import all of the food. Vertical farms could provide a really interesting nutritional uh, solution to that that could actually make economic sense. So that's great. That's a specific solution. But, but in the end, you know, people need calories. People need a, a, a diverse set of, of nutrients. And vertical farming today doesn't provide that. It provides a specific solution to a specific problem in some places. Um, I think another complex question is, are vertical farms really green? I mean, are they really good for the environment? You've got a lot of equipment. I studied sustainability management at Columbia, and one of the things we looked at a lot was embodied energy. What is the carbon footprint of all of that equipment? And I think that, you know, vertical farming, one of the complex and difficult discussions is vertical farming gets away with being seen as green because it saves a ton of water, saves a ton of space, uses no pesticides. You've got this list of all these benefits that kind of makes the embodied energy of the construction and also the carbon footprint from the lights if the energy is sourced from, you know, a carbon intensive energy source. So in America, most of our energy or a lot of energy today, depending on where you are, comes from coal. So if you're taking coal and powering a farm that's growing salads, are you really green? And I think life cycle analysis is lacking in this space to really look at that. There's a lot of problems with traditional agriculture growing lettuce, right? So I think there are cases where vertical farming can be more carbon competitive from a sustainability assessment, but I think that that needs to be defined pretty specifically. And so that's, a, that's another one of the complex questions. Another one is around equity. When you build farms that are very capital intensive, like vertical farms are, so if this is urban agriculture, this is low tech, low investment, this is high tech, high investment, vertical farming is here, right? And, and, and automated vertical farms are here, right? So the, so the robot farms in the future. Will there be a future where those farms are actually solving, not food security, but I'd say food access issues, for example, Atlanta has 25% of its population lives in food deserts. Will vertical farms solve that problem if they're so expensive? I hope so. But let's have a complex discussion about what they're doing to do that today and when and where they could do that in the future. So those are some for you, to, you all to think about. <laughs> yeah, it's helpful because I think a lot of people, when they first introduced to the concept uh, and, and the idea of it, it's really glamorous and it is very futuristic, but it is really like a lot of the, the phase, what we call in the phase one, I interviewed Stephen Pankhurst, who did a really interesting session, three-part series on YouTube that talked about like the viability of, of these different, starting out with leafy greens. And then, you know, I, I know you talk to the agri-cool folks doing strawberries now <laughs> in, in Dubai. So it's interesting. So it seems like there is a push. And I think there was just I just posted something today on, on Twitter about the uh, the bunched tomatoes now as well, which is interesting. So there's some interesting it's almost like adopting the crop to to benefit the most from for, for something like a vertical farm environment. Well, you, you, you're absolutely right there. I, I'm not saying I think all of these solutions, these 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 challenges or critiques can be solved. And I, and I think, again, it's about I, I don't know, I'm very proud of our methodology and how we we approach that question at the beginning. Like, what is the right what is your problem that you're trying to solve and what is the right solution to match that problem? And I think, you know, a lot of the companies in the space obviously have an incentive to say their way is the best every time. And I, and I think, I think that's not where I'm at. You know, I, I prefer to take a step back. And I think another part of what you mentioned that's really interesting is, is yes, right now, most of the, the, almost all of the seeds used in vertical farms are seeds intended for field growing. So, for example, I was meeting with Reichsfund recently. They're one of the biggest seed companies, and, and they are breeding for indoor farming and want to be the leader in this indoor farming kind of seed you know, question. I think the other piece is genetic engineering, which has huge, huge potentials to impact vertical farming. Like you said, growing more dense tomatoes. I was at the University of Guelph recently, and they've been able to breed a plum tree that basically fruits like a, a tomato. So imagine, kind of like that tomato you saw in that picture, your the article you're talking about, imagine that, but with plums and it's it, it's constantly fruiting year round. So it, you know they showed it to me and it, and it kind of grows flat like a vine as opposed to like a tree. So it, it could work in controlled environments. They, they're, they're doing it for space because because that product, the, apparently there's something about plums and, and bone density that they need for the astronauts. So, so there's a huge future for that. But again, that's a bit of a conflict with some of the consumer ideas around GMOs. Like, does Europe want a bunch of genetically engineered vertical farms growing food because it's more dense and, and more efficient? 
Will they accept that? Will the Middle East accept that? Maybe. Europe, probably not. The U.S., maybe some places, maybe not. So, you know, vertical farming has this thing where, you know, it needs to be about integrating agriculture, not vertical farming, in my opinion, because vertical farming is just one one approach. And I think when you take a step back, you can be more open about, you know, solving that problem. Yeah, it's funny, because even this idea about GMOs, I was talking to uh, Louisa Burwood-Taylor from AgFunder about this, and just even the definition and the education for the public about there's different types of genetically mo- even the word genetically modified could mean if you're if you're genetically modifying something so that it, it grows in a, in, a, in a more fruitful fashion for the environment as opposed to like changing the inherent nature of that you know which which is the one that people have a problem with and i think that's going to be part of the challenge as well because there i think there there are going to be some benefits to you know quote unquote genetically modifying uh, a crop so that it, it grows better in these types of in these types of environments yeah, and I think, you know, genetic modification, like you said, there's different kinds and, and breeding versus different versus genetic modification. And then there's also, you know, cellular biology and, 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 and that approach, which is, which is kind of a next level thing. So, you know, breeding has been happening forever, pretty much. So consumers don't seem to have a problem with that. And genetic modification is kind of just the next step for that. And, and, and there's levels of genetic modification. Like, are you taking animal, you know, DNA and putting it into a plant or are you just taking other plant DNA? So it, it, it's, it's complicated in that way. And I think a lot of consumers um, or a lot of people even that are in agriculture approach me and they say, you know what, you know, vertical farming, it, it's just not natural, right? Hydroponics is not natural. And, I, and I, I like to say to them, I said, well, you know, can you tell me like when was agriculture natural? Like <laughs> yeah. it's, it's always been engineered. Like unless we're going to yeah. just go around and gather, the minute we started organizing rows of farms or started analyzing soil, like we, we said that engineering plays a role in agriculture. So to draw a line in the sand and say, this is the end of man using technology for agriculture, you know, where there's no way we're going to feed 9 billion people with that. And so we have some real problems that we may need to make some compromises for. So let's talk a little bit about the actual definition, because we were chatting a bit in the pre-chat about, you know, what is a vertical farm? So, um, and I know that some of your colleagues, uh, you have a, a friendly disagreement on to what, as to what that is. But when people come to you, right, what are you thinking of and what are the solutions you're presenting when it comes to vertical farms? Because I know that can cover things like container farms as well. Yeah. So, you know, this discussion point really comes from uh, a mentor of mine, Dr. Dixon Napami, author of The Vertical Farm, who I'm sure will be on this podcast. And he's amazing. And I respect him and adore him. And we we worked together and, and we we designed a vertical farm together. And I remember one of the conflicts we had was... I picked a site in the Bronx and I was really curious about the kind of urban planning part of it. So I wanted to find, there's no zoning for vertical farming or even agriculture in most cities. So I said, well, what kind of zoning does a vertical farm fit into? And, and I, I settled on the light manufacturing zoning based on its definition would be the easiest one to fit into. So then I found 10 sites and I narrowed that down to one site that I was going to choose for my canvas. And I worked with Dixon to design for that. And, you know, Dixon de Pommier's book is about literally skyscraper farms. I mean, these are skyscraper, you know, beautiful ecosystems, really, you know, amazing futuristic stuff that I'm a big fan of. But, you know, in reality, there are constraints that happen. For example, you have floor to area ratios that are required for different building sites. So, you know, how far are you from the curb after your first floor? How in-depth does your building need to be? And that changes the actual area of your building. And that's how places like New York and major cities plan their buildings. So the point I'm trying to make was Dixon was like, make it taller, make it bigger. And I was like, well, literally the site doesn't allow for that. And then that kind of evolved into when my design was finished and, and fit my attempt to fit code and zoning, zoning requirements. We then had this you know, discussion about what vertical farming is. And so he defines it as basically you know, farming that's stacked and is two floors or higher. So moving towards the verticality of the structure is very important, a Dixon's definition. My definition is really about three-dimensional farming. That It could be one floor. It could be a container. It could be a basement. It's really about saying, okay, when we think three-dimensionally about agriculture and the potential to photosynthesize plants using LEDs, you know, what can we do and what could we do with this space? And again, I think that's more of a planning architecture perspective because there's plenty of lazy spaces in cities. There's different kind of areas you could fit into. Typically, those farms are hydroponic, but they don't have to be. Typically, those farms are LED lit, but you could imagine, you know, greenhouse structures that have vertical use of space. I think that embraces vertical farming. With that said, I didn't coin the term vertical farm. You know, Dixon was the first public person to really go big on that. There were some vertical farms that existed before, you know, Dixon wrote about that. So he gets to define it, really. 
But, but if you're asking me, I think it's about, again, taking a step back, thinking three-dimensionally, and how you can use existing technologies to, to do 3D farming, vertical farming. Yeah, when you were uh, on the Atlanta episode, you were stressing the importance of, of keeping the farms close to the energy source, which I thought was interesting as well. I love that you're a mega fan of locally grown in. You've listened to multiple episodes. So Atlanta was really cool. Um, yeah, so, so you know, again, going to the carbon footprint question, there are parts of the world that because of energy efficiency advancements in lighting and, and various systems, they actually have excess energy on the grid. And they sell that energy to other people, other states, other countries in some cases, at a lower cost. And as energy moves across these transmission lines, those transmission lines emit energy and they actually lose that energy. So if, if you're Alabama and I'm Georgia and I'm gonna send you excess energy, I may lose 30% of that energy along that way. That is a sustainability issue. So if we can keep all 100% in Atlanta, in Georgia, and turn that into edible product for consumers, that's basically taking free energy on the grid and turning it into a product that benefits the community. And I think that's very circular economy thinking. And, and I think that that's a really exciting play for this, is what are the regions where we can get free energy? I mean, another one is in New York State and Pennsylvania. There are thousands, I think 3,000 was the estimate Cornell gave, where there's uh, small natural gas wells that are too small to make money off of, meaning to build piping, to send it to a refinery, but they also kind of create some geological issues, so they burn it. So they're just burning gas at these 3,000 locations. What if we just put greenhouses on all of those locations? Well, Cornell estimates, a researcher at Cornell estimates that we can grow all of the Northeast's leafy greens with those greenhouses, and 30 to 40% of the energy for those greenhouses would be free. That's where I get excited. And that's, and that's again why, for anyone listening, you have to take a step back from vertical farming because that's, those are the opportunities where you get the biggest wins. You know, you, nobody wants to fit a square within a triangle, right? You remember that game when we were a kid with the little... That's what you're doing when you say vertical farming is the solution and I'm going to fit it here and there. You need to take a step back and use design thinking. You mentioned the circular energy because you talked about that on the Brussels episode and that, that seems to be the location where they're more focused on that concept of making sure like the, the energy consumption is, is actually circular. Yeah, it's not just energy, it's also water and waste. So yeah. what we're talking about the circular economy is that you know cities and spaces have resource flows, they have inputs and outputs. You as an individual have inputs and outputs. So you know how can we make sure that the source of, of inputs for buildings and the outputs from them, wastewater, et cetera, can be used for something else instead of, you know, in New York, we produce trash and then we send it to Ohio. How can we take some of that trash and, and make it something useful? That, that's kind of circular economy thinking. And I think what Belgium and Brussels shows is the power of culture around what is sustainable and the role of leaders and policies to drive that culture. So the EU has made circular economy a big part of their initiatives. Europeans have a long history of being particularly efficient with space and particularly thoughtful about the earth in ways that maybe North America hasn't because of the abundant resources it had when it was colonized. So that culture can drive the behavior of entrepreneurs. And what we see in Brussels is that there, there was not one farm I visited that was like, yeah, we just produce greens and then sell them. You know, it was like we vertical farms were capturing rainwater in Brussels, which you, I've never seen in the United States. They, they, they were partnerships with mushroom farms nearby to share. There was, you know, fish farms that are, are growing indoor fish and then selling their waste to greenhouses in decoupled aquaponic systems. And I was like, wow, within a week, I've seen 10 examples, 20 examples of different farms, all with different incentives. Like some of them want to go big VC, some of them want to be community focused, some of them are restaurant focused, and all of them considered it. And that's because Brussels, the EU, and Belgium have created even small, like you'll get $1,500 a year if you can prove you're doing something with circular economy, you know, or you'll be on a list of, of circular economy initiatives. And, and entrepreneurs do it based on that. So I think it's cultural, I think it's leadership and policy focused, but very cool and, and something I'd like to see more of here. Yeah, I saw that plenty in one of the blog posts was doing a bit of research into figuring out like a fully compostable clamshell, right? Because that's one of the like dark, like the hidden secrets of like all these greens is like all this plastic we're, we're generating. Have you heard of any companies that are making some inroads there? Honestly, it's a really difficult challenge. I mean, they're, they're all looking at it. You know, you've got energy to also create those new packaging products and, and those methods can also have negative consequences. You know, you have to gather the waste, you have to process the waste, you have to, you know, maybe sometimes add some chemicals to it, you know, and then when it's compostable, do consumers compost it properly? Do they understand where to compost it? 
What's the speed at which it degrades relative to other food products and combustible products? Right now, there is not a clear solution for that problem, and it's a big problem. So whoever solves that one will be very rich. Yeah, it sounds as alluding to our earlier topic of VC money. I think if, <laughs> if there's a company that's in that space with all these folks, I think they'll get a lot of people's attention. Well, I mean, I like Ecovative. They're a company in, in Brooklyn that does, they do mushroom containers and packaging, but the costs are, are pretty extreme. And when you think about salad mix and, and, you know, those products kind of need to breathe in a different way. And so the packaging is actually pretty refined. There's actually a lot of perforations in the packaging to allow it to breathe. You know, nobody, you know, when you go to the store and you see a salad mix and it's so humid in the product, you can't see the product. That's a problem. And so a lot of these companies, you know, they obviously want to focus on making sure the consumer likes the product and wants to buy it. And packaging is a huge part of that. And the fact is that we want everything pretty. We want everything convenient and clean. And, and those things tend to require toxic chemicals. Can you talk a little bit about your process? I think in one of the, your podcast interviews, you mentioned how you've collected so much data at Agritecture that you're now actually, I don't know if it's open sourcing is the right term, but you're providing a lot of that data for people to use. And I think if they've got ideas about a type of farm they want to grow and, and a location, they can actually do a little bit of the um, the research using some of the, the, the heavy lifting you guys have already done. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, Agritecture's mission is to accelerate urban agriculture globally as a response to climate change for adaptation. And we want to empower anyone anywhere to get involved in that. So we began that through the blog, chapter one, where we share free knowledge and we continue that. So we have a, you know my talks, these podcasts, I'm really trying to add value for free to anyone who's interested in the space so that you can make a difference. So that's something we do, that's something we continue. Chapter two is for those people that are really serious about building farms and really want to build some of the best brands and the best technologies and the best solutions, we've compiled an expert team to advise on that for a consulting fee. But obviously, having done this for a minute now, I've learned that there's a lot of people out there that are too early for consulting, or they are just curious, but genuinely curious. Maybe they're just earlier on their journey. Maybe they're in a region where they can't afford a New York City consultant, and that's fine. That doesn't mean we don't want to solve their problems. So what we've done is we've taken our approach, which has really started from when I started the blog, which was as I reported on companies, I built an archive about my observations. You know, what was the amount of money they raised? What's their typical yield? How many workers did they have? You know, nothing proprietary, but things that really help me understand how they relate to each other. Again, going back to that methodology. That archive then has been really refined and developed with the horticulturalists I work with on my team and engineers and the economists. So we have a really exciting database of, of models are for, for, that are viable for agriculture around the world. So what we decided to do was to create a way for people to access those models. So Agritecture Designer, which is launching very soon, it's right now being tested in beta. It's been built, at least the version, the beta version of it. It has two parts to it. One is a free concept development tool for anyone who wants to think about an urban farm or urban garden. You can enter in your budget. You can enter in, if you're interested in greenhouse or vertical or soil, you can enter in how big your team is. You can enter in your location. You can enter in what crops you're curious about. You can enter in your goal. Do you want a for-profit farm? Do you want a community-focused farm? And after you enter that information for free, you're going to get a vision report, which is a report of your idea on one paper. So you can kind of have like, this is my idea. And you can share this with people. And you're going to get a, a project timeline, a typical timeline for a project of your scale and the inputs you gave. So you can think about what is it going to take from you and who might you want to join your team to do this. And you're going to get a list of three different farms based on our algorithm that are relevant to your inputs. And so anyone anywhere will be able to do that for free. If you want to go further with your idea, let's say you talk to a, your friend and you want to be co-founders and you say, you know, we should start drafting a business plan. You can subscribe and you can become, you know, we have different subscription levels, but essentially the subscription is going to be based around a set period of time where you can build an unlimited number of projects. Because again, we want you to practice that methodology of observing data and experimenting and finding your right fit. And basically you can build 10 year economic models. So you can access our database by inputting, again, more details about your market, specific pricing for your products that you do. We're going to encourage you to do market research and go through our methodology online, independent of a consultant. And what you're going to get in the end is, what's your payback? What's your yield? What's your overall capex? How much of your opex is going towards seeds, for example? And you're going to really know what it's going to take from you to develop that business. And we're going to invite you to keep going and build unlimited projects until you get to your best version. And that's going to hopefully make you better prepared for two things. One, going out on your own and building your farm. Or two, 
If you do want to talk to us, you're going to be better prepared and you're going to be able to have a lower cost engagement with us because you've already done your homework. So we're allowing you to do that homework at a very low cost way. In addition to that thing, we're also created classes. So we've taken our, our commercial urban farming classes and put them online. So you're not just on your own experimenting with this. We're going to teach you the different types of urban farms. We're going to teach you the main technologies that will make or break your business. We're going to teach you how do you do market research and how do you think about finding your customer. Um, we're going to teach you about aquaponics and organic certification. So all of that is going to be online and, and combined. I think that's really going to democratize some of the basic knowledge. And, and again, talk about those complex questions. I think it's going to elevate the discussion globally to get us to a more sophisticated level of discussion about vertical farming and greenhouses. That sounds amazing. And I'm excited about the beta as well, because I've been thinking about this idea for something in New Orleans. My brother lives there and I've been kind of like getting his uh, feedback on, on the the market there. He actually works in food distribution. So yeah, when you talk about the last mile, like I, like that's part of the challenges, I'm sure. Like it's great. You know, you have the planning, you're gonna, you have to make it, you know how you're going to harvest it and, and the model you're going to use. But and then you have to actually like make the connections to like the rest, if you're doing a smaller, like the restaurants and the chefs. And, you know, I, I wonder, would the courses cover some of that from a marketing perspective? Or is that something that, you know, that's a bit more challenging? Totally. So, so the way the courses are broken out is we kind of talk about specific models. So for example, if you're looking to do a farm one style model, which is like a boutique, you know, chef garden farm, we talk to you about what you should expect from your sales perspective. You know, like you're going to be spending a lot of time just talking to chefs and building a cool brand and doing collaborations. And if you're excited about that, go for that model, right? Or create your own version of that, of that idea. If you are really excited about, you know, signing two-year deals with Kroger, to buy your product at you know million pounds a year, okay, you need to go towards the big warehouse vertical farming model. If you're excited about having customers come to you and have an experience and buy product on site and do a market, that's another option. So we're never gonna tell people this is, I mean, if we're consulting you and we get to the conclusion, we'll tell you, we're never gonna tell people like, this is what you should do right away. Instead, we wanna arm people with the tools and the, and the methods to help them make their own conclusion because that's what's gonna make them really good entrepreneurs. They have to really be excited about their decision and excited about the work they're gonna do on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and a big part of that is the market marketing. So I'm so glad you're excited about it because I am so excited about this product. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat to get it out there and share with people. Yeah, if there's a beta or something, I'd love to be able to test it because it's just, I'm, I'm a bit of a um, systems like kind of nerd and just like geeking out on systems and, and I love uh, stats and I used to manage like a customer service reporting team back in the day. So I love like spreadsheets, <laughs> let's put it that way. Yeah, well, we're, we're, we're working through some bugs. It's, it's being tested by beta users right now. If you look, if, if you sh shoot me an email and, and we'll see what we can do. But if anybody here is interested in the product, it's called Agritecture Designer. You can learn about it a bit more at agritecture.com slash designer. And you can actually sign up to be notified once it goes public or as we release more beta users. So uh, take a look and, and we, we'd love to you know, see what you think. Yeah, we'll make sure we get all those links in the show notes. One thing that's interesting, because I'm, I'm Latino, I was born in El Salvador. So this idea of like minority owned businesses, entrepreneurial culture, building up that you sort of touched on a little bit in your episode with Maurice, and you mentioned how you were in one of these sessions, and you were in like a, a community forum. Can you talk a little bit about what happened? Because I don't want to spoil it. I'd rather have you tell it because I, I thought it was fascinating and, and, and your reaction to it. Yeah, I'm happy to. It's a bit, it's a bit uh, sensitive. So I want to talk about it in the right way. I'm a white man. I grew up in an upper middle class family, so I have a lot of privilege. And I think growing up internationally, I was pretty unaware of race issues because I grew up in international schools where I had people from all over the world that were both my teachers and my fellow colleagues. With that said, I, I probably didn't interact with other wealth categories and didn't get the connection between race and wealth gaps. Now, when you are working in urban agriculture, you have to understand that there, as Karen Washington says, or, and calls it credit to her, there's, there's a food apartheid. There have been decisions made to elevate certain populations and exclude other populations. And food is one of the many representations of that kind of apartheid, of that division. So even the idea of a food desert as a name from USDA is considered by many as very disrespectful and almost you know, racist because it's, it's, it's talking about these places that are deserts, even though a lot of people who are making that definition were part of the problem. So when I come in and I'm a white male and I'm like it, asked by the city of, of Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Borough President's Office asked me to compile a list of individuals to invite and to have a roundtable about the future of urban agriculture and resiliency. And I was honored by that. It was, it was five years ago, so it was pretty early on. And I sent invitations out 
to women and men and, and the people I had known, others were invited too. So, you know, we, we had pretty good representation at that meeting, but there's always people that are excluded. And some of those people are on the ground. They don't have time. They don't have the financial means to maybe get places. Maybe they don't have the same abilities with technology to respond to certain invitations. So some people were excluded. And so I kind of became a representative of this group in some ways and was leading it and answering questions for it. And in, in that sense, I, I was put in a position to think about the future of urban agriculture in New York City, but I, I don't represent a lot of the populations that need that. And so as I'm, I was speaking at some of these events, in one particular one, several people of color were extremely aggressive to me about the fact that I was proposing ideas for their food security and their community's food security. Things like, what right do you have? Or you're co-opting urban agriculture, which was a very community kind of guerrilla grassroots history to it. I was called a, a white biotech farmer, you know, to my face. You know, I'm, I'm neither a farmer and I don't work in biotech, right? So, so, so these were difficult things for me. I was interrupted several times and said, you know, someone said to me, you know, I know I interrupted you several times, but you know what, I've been, I've been interrupted by white men my whole life, so I'm not going to apologize. So things that like, things that were shocking for me because I didn't grow up in the United States. I sound American, but I'm not American. So I don't, I don't understand a lot of those race issues. And, and, and previously, as I mentioned, I grew up in a very international background and a privileged background. So I didn't get to experience that. I took a breath and I let it happen. And I, I kind of dealt with my whatever trauma from that afterwards individually, because I, I don't understand, but I, I respect that they're standing up for themselves. I empathize as much as I, as much as I can. And you know, the relationship with those individuals has improved since. There's, there's no problems. And I've learned a lot about how to be more sensitive to that. But I guess as somebody who's creative and is like, hey, let's solve this problem and let's do this. I mean, I can be very naive about trying to solve communities' problems that don't want my help or don't, you know, there's a lot of trust that needs to be built to do that, even if I have a lot to offer. And that was, that's really hard for me because I just want to solve the problems and I have a lot to offer. So um, we kind of changed the format of leadership there. And we had women as part of our for-profit agricultural collective, um, a group of for-profit farms in New York that as a woman of color and a CEO. So she stepped in for me. So I wasn't able to be part of that process anymore simply because of my sex and the color of my skin. I mean, I, I was literally removed because of that. So, so that was difficult for me. And, and I wanted to get Maurice's advice on that. And I think his advice on that podcast was really good and, and open. And, and again, if I've said anything to offend anyone or, or be offensive, I, I do apologize. I'm, I'm just communicating my experience and and that I, I, I'm, I'm trying to do the best for my communities. Yeah, I think it's an important discussion to have because, to, you know, to your point, the optics on even something like ag tech, like when you see like conferences and you see speakers and you're like, whoa, that's a very like white male <laughs> to list panel of folks. Is that are those the only people doing interesting things in this space? So I think having these conversations early on and, you know, when you were talking about the, the access to the blueprint and people getting started with how they want to grow their farms, even maybe ideas about partnering with, you know, because you can be a minority owned business and, and grants and that sort of stuff. And I'm wondering if there's some opportunities to kind of put position this as something that, you know, minority business owners can look at as an opportunity that they can delve further into? Oh, definitely. I mean, RFPs are coming from cities. The city of Philadelphia had an RFP for their local food system plan. We gathered, you know, we have female advisors and female temp team members, and we also found local, um, you know, people of color and females to join our team for that. But I still think we, we lost that in part because they had a local, um, more diverse team than us. Okay, great. And I, and I love those initiatives, and I think that that's that's great, and I I, I support that fully. We we don't we don't do enough to encourage diversity, and we still don't have enough diversity. If you look at the news that's happening with the Oscars right now, you know, it, it, and ag tech is especially especially bad at this. Um, but look, agriculture does a lot of work to try and change that in our own way. We've created women in ag tech um, panels. We've created women in ag tech roundtables. We have diversity goals for our company. I. As a keynote speaker, when I get invited to panels that's only men on it, I say, I will not be on a panel. You need to find a woman or replace me with a woman. So those are the things that, that we need to do. And, I, and I'm certainly not perfect. But I think to your point, look, I want a lot more people in urban ag and there's a lot of problems to solve. So if you're a woman or minority or business or potentially can be that, try to find a specific gap in your community, your region, or with your expertise, you can build a business around that because there are, there are opportunities for you. Um, as there should be. You mentioned some of the events that you're doing with agriculture. Can can you? We'll use that as a segue to the. Uh, you, you run an event, a week long event in New York City as well, right? Yeah. So agriculture uh, both produces events and creates programming for events and 
is a media partner for some events. You can find all of the events on our events page, uh, agritecture.com slash events. And what we do is we, the week-long event you're referring to is NYC Ag Tech Week, which we do with other members of the NYC Ag Collective. And that's like an anti-conference. We basically said, let's not have a single location. Let's not rent out a space. Let's just use our community to, to, to showcase what's possible. So we kind of um, go all over the city. The first year was crazy ambitious that we did it. We did all five boroughs. We had farm tours in all five boroughs and it was six days. And yeah, it was so exciting because people get to like really interact with the farmers and really, you know, we did like tech demos and we did policy panels. So it's really, really fun. And, and we've been doing that um, ever since. I think we're doing our fifth year probably in September. So, but that's not just agriculture anymore. We have a lot of people that, that work together on it. That, that That's really exciting. And if you want to keep up to date with that, you can go to farming.nyc and, and see the collective's website. We are going to Abu Dhabi in March to do the biggest ag tech event in the region, Global Forum for Innovations in Agriculture. We're looking for sponsors for that to join us to do a special program there. We are doing our really big event. Well, I guess I'll, I'll say a couple more. I'm, I'm doing a mega trends panel at Indoor AgCon in May, which is going to be really kind of bringing in big companies that I can't mention who they are yet to talk about how they're looking at this. So non-ag companies looking at indoor ag. So I'm excited about that. I, I'm, I'm going to be at Green Tech, biggest horticultural fair in the world in Amsterdam, working on the programming for their vertical farming pavilion. And then September is NYC Ag Tech Week. And then December is, is we're just about to announce it, is the Agritecture Exchange, which is an event that we're producing in Toronto, December 1st and 2nd, two days, six thematic areas across ag tech, really amazing pavilions and thematic focus areas. Really, really exciting event that I am stoked to see you at. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to make it to uh, New York in September. I was talking to Louise about it. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll broadcast live some sessions there. Um, so so I mean, it sounds like you've got your finger on the pulse of everything that's happening as you know, as part of the research for this podcast, I've been collecting, I've got an air table full of like a ton of <laughs> conferences and, and and speakers and companies. But yeah, I mean, just in looking at the conferences, there's so many happening and there's a, a lot of interest in the space, it seems, all across the country as well, because you just described, I think, like events in like two or three different countries uh, alone. So um, as we wrap up, what would you say has got you, you know, because you've got your finger on the pulse with what's happening with what companies are, are developing and even some stuff that you probably can't talk about. But I'm wondering what has you excited when you think about, uh, you know, talk a little bit about vertical farming, but you can talk about the general ag tech space as well um, when you think about the next 12 months. Yeah. What am I excited about in 2020 for ag tech? I, there's some big companies that have been around for a while, um, like Priva, which is a really great company. Um, they've been doing a lot of research and, and announcing some new technologies and solutions, both software and hardware for the space. I'm very excited to see those announcements coming soon. And they also have launched a new foundation called the Sustainable Urban Delta Foundation that kind of really thinks about cities and productive landscapes that I'll be in a documentary with them that's coming out this this year. And it's going to be really, really exciting to, to see that. And and I'm really excited to see what comes from them. I, I think I'm really mostly excited about automated racking systems in 2020 uh, as it comes to vertical farming. We've seen a lot of advancements in that area, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. But I think the companies are getting really smart in finding partners who have established automation solutions to bring them in as opposed to building everything in-house. And so I'm really excited as we move from um, no automation to semi-automated. You know, I don't think we're going to get to automated yet, even though a lot of them are marketing that, but we're moving towards semi-automated more consistently. So I'm excited to see the difference that's going to make once the operations are running and, and some of those metrics to see, you know, how is it worth the CapEx? In scenarios, sometimes when we're, when we're modeling them, sometimes it's, it's worth it and sometimes it's not. So all that CapEx is an additional risk. Uh, you have to sell more lettuce. So I'm curious to see if that, if that happens because that's always been like the future of this. So I think 2020, we'll see some advancements in that area. I'm excited about the genetic research piece. I don't think there's going to be that much advancement. I think we're still looking at a five-year trajectory for a lot of that genetics and breeding research to be applied to the, the market specifically. But I'm looking forward to, to seeing more of that. I think food safety is really exciting. We've had a lot of food safety scares in Australia, Europe, uh, um, more Australia and, and the U.S., uh, certainly in other parts of the world too. But in the U.S., it's been, it's been really prevalent around leafy greens. And so I'm really excited to see how food safety uh, policies change and the new food safety co coalition, which is run by a couple different big vertical farming and greenhouse companies. And it's really cool to see them collaborate on something like food safety that's so important to consumers and to the industry. So I'm really excited to see that kind of change things and maybe drive more people indoors. 
And I guess the last category is policy. Like, you know, we, we have the third urban agriculture directory in the United States that, that was just put into place in D.C. to join Atlanta and Philadelphia. That's really exciting. You know, we have the Minister of Food Security in the UAE that's really going to be launching a bunch of things in the coming year in the UAE. We've got policy really advancing as well in Singapore in the space. You know, Australia now is going to have to think about these things. New Zealand is thinking about these things a bit more. So I'm really excited to see how policy you know, accelerates the industry and starts to structure it a little bit, you know, because it, it can really formulate a policy decision like the one we referred to in Brussels really formed the kind of farms we saw. So I'm excited to see how those different policies will, will actually drive the kind of integrations that we see. And of course, I'm excited about the launch of Agritecture Designer in 2020. Hell yes. Sounds like a lot of stuff to be excited about. And I, it feels like <laughs> you're like, at, I mean, your company is at the nexus of, of what's happening because you're you're touching and you're engaging with so many different folks in the space. So it's you're almost in the catbird seat in terms of like seeing what's possible and then seeing what's coming in. So it, it's, it seems like just really exciting times to be in the space. And I think you know, when you think about the development that can happen, I think some of it is we, we can't even imagine the things that people will develop, you know, in, in this sort of ag tech space and new companies that will arise to meet needs. You know, I talked a little bit with Louisa about the idea of modular is, you know, companies moving towards modular. So companies like Soft Robotics, you know, making the, the grippers for the for the ripe fruit and, you know, companies like Intelligent Growth Solutions, right? And I think, I guess that's something you're seeing as well in your analysis, like when people want to put something together, it's probably better to think modular because there's some, the innovation is happening so fast. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a whole podcast about that, but it saves on some of that embodied energy if you can do prefab and modular solutions, which I like. And then actually, you can also compartmentalize and solve certain problems, HVAC challenges, reduce certain costs in that way. And bottom line, you know, we did a global census around controlled environment agriculture with uh, Autogrow, our partner for this year or last year. And 41% of the of the farmers in CA are new. So if you're a new farmer, you know, you're not going to be building your own turnkey solutions every time. You need some turnkey, modular, easily shippable solutions and 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 the market needs that and we're going to be seeing more of those coming up. All right, that's probably a good place to <laughs> put a pit in there for now, but I, that's a lot of great information happening, so it's really exciting. I'm sure I could probably geek out for another. <laughs> we'll save that for a future podcast episode. So where's the best place for folks to track you down and connect with you online? Yeah, I definitely want you to check out agritecture.com. We've got research articles on there. We've got podcasts. We've got videos. We've got blogs for seven years, I think, are on there in the archive already. You know, Our newsletter is a really, really good resource as well to know about the events and what's happening. So just dig through agriculture. Let me know what you like about it, what you don't, what you'd like to see. I'm, I'm always looking to talk to our audience and, and anyone curious about this space. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Just search Henry Gordon Smith. Or you can connect with me di directly on social media by looking for The Agritect on Instagram and Twitter. And Henry is active on social. I can vouch for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for this podcast. I really appreciate you inviting me on. I love to see a vertical farming focused podcast like this and, and really great questions. So I really appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time for joining me on the show. Thanks again to Henry for sharing his journey of the founding of Agritecture and how he and his company have come to play an important role in helping me and others understand the ag tech industry. It's clear from the conversation and from Henry's social posts that it's a topic that he's really passionate about. I'm excited next week for a conversation with John Friedman. He is the Chief Operating Officer of Freight Farms. It was one of the companies that I was looking forward to learning more about, and John did not disappoint with his interview, so stay tuned for that. That's going to be Episode 5. Thanks for listening. To hear all past episodes and read the episode summaries, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.